Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Fiona Bennett. Faye, we're here in person together. I can't remember the last time we had this. Fantastic to see you. I know, there's no screen involved. It's, <laughs> it's absurd. It's a big month for poetry. October is the month. I think it's a great thing, you know. Guess the end of summer, you can have a little bit of a downer feeling and poetry just swings right in and says, we're going to have National Poetry Day, we're going to have the Forward Poetry Prizes. Absolutely right. Shall we start with National Poetry Day? Indeed. Thursday the 5th of October, National Poetry Day in the UK. There's a theme every year, mm -hmm. and uh, the theme this year is Refuge. And thinking about that theme of refuge feet, you've selected a poem for our bonus poem reading, which comes at the end of the episode. And I just wanted to say, it is a really, really special reading this month from Kieran Hines, who was kind enough to take part in our In the Company of Poems live event about 18 months ago. So I just wanted to encourage people to stay for that at the end. So also Forward Poetry Prize. Yes. I think it's four or five prizes. Bernadine Evaristo, Chair of the Judges this year, I believe. And the event where winners will be announced is 16th of October. There's lots of fantastic information on the Forward Poetry Prize's website about the poets who are shortlisted and their collections. And as we know with prizes, all those on the shortlist will be worth exploring and reading and finding out more about. So mm. don't delay. Is there anyone on there that's caught your eye, Fee? I think it's on the best first collection. Sophia Camaria Kinshasa has written a collection called Cane, Corn and Gully. And I heard a great podcast with her talking about her writing practice and about that book. And I... Yeah, I think it's pretty extraordinary what she's up to there. So I think people should check that one out. Great. She sounds interesting. Yeah. She's doing some really interesting things about um, exploring dance, notation and the body and how she wants to express particular narratives through that combination of form. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very clever stuff. Should we move on to our episode, Faye? I think that's a great idea. So this is one, uh, again, that doesn't feature either you or I in the conversation. You're going to be hearing Andrea and Al talking about Timothy Winters by Charles Causley, the poem that's been a friend to Tim. So, Tim, could you read the poem that you've chosen? Sure. That'd be great. Thank you. Timothy Winters comes to school with eyes as wide as a football pool, ears like bombs and teeth like splinters, a blitz of a boy is Timothy Winters. His belly is white, his neck is dark, and his hair is an exclamation mark. His clothes are enough to scare a crow, and through his breeches the blue winds blow. When teacher talks, he won't hear a word, and he shoots down dead the arithmetic bird, he licks the patterns off his plate, and he's not even heard of the welfare state. Timothy Winters has bloody feet, and he lives in a house on Suez Street. He sleeps in a sack on the kitchen floor, and they say there aren't boys like him anymore. Old man Winters likes his beer, and his missus ran off with a bombardier. Grandma sits in the grate with a gin, 
and Timothy's dosed with an aspirin. The welfare worker lies awake, but the law's as tricky as a ten-foot snake, so Timothy Winters drinks his cup and slowly goes on growing up. At morning prayers, the master helves for children less fortunate than ourselves, and the loudest response in the room is when Timothy Winters roars, Amen! So come one angel, come on ten. Timothy Winters says, Amen. Amen, 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 Amen. Timothy Winters, Lord. Amen. Lovely. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. Great reading, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's easy to do, I should say, with a, a poem that is as well put together and as well constructed as this one. It's a really interesting poem. I'm curious when you first met this friend. Very shortly after my family first moved to the UK, I should say. I wasn't born here. I was born in the Republic of Ireland. And when I was seven or eight years old, my family moved here. And um, not long after that, because I remember it was in primary school assembly, my then English teacher got up in front of, uh, of all of us and read this poem. And I remember it very distinctly because there was no embellishment. Uh, there was no commentary. There was no talking around it. It was just Timothy Winters by Charles Causley. And I think even if some of it, I am quite certain, went over my head. I think something about the verve of its composition, the freshness of its language, there was something about it that just thrilled me. I think I got an inkling even at that age that there was in this ostensibly, what starts out as I think quite a, a humorous poem potentially, that there was something dark and menacing hovering over it. And it just intrigued me. So yeah, having first encountered it when I was very young, it's just kept resurfacing at various points in my life from that point on. Tim, you have reminded me that I first heard this poem at primary school too. Really? Did you? It was read to us. And like you, Tim, I had exactly the same reaction. I didn't understand it, but I, I was just excited by the language and the rhythm. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, I'm glad to hear it. I know very little about Charles Causley's body of work, but I do know that this and other poems were written very much with children in mind. But also what I find so fascinating about it is that the poem also grew with me. It's kind of perfect as, as a way to introduce a young audience to what poetry can do for you and then can keep doing for you throughout your life as you as you keep returning to it. You know, I think you are the first guest who has known their friend since primary school. Really? And I think that's amazing that it stayed with you too. And I think you're right. There's this clever sort of song-like quality that, that would appeal to children. And obviously it's about a child. And yet it's about so much more. So... As a child, what appealed to you most about the poem? Um, I mean, first and foremost, I think the thing that got my attention was its memorability. The use of rhyme was something that I, it was very easy for me to get excited about. I, I didn't know this at the time. I didn't find out until I was quite a lot older that I was on the autism spectrum. But one of the ways in which that seems to manifest for me is... Um, 
I echo quite a lot of what I hear. I have a tendency to repeat certain words and phrases and quite a lot of other things to myself over and over again, as much for comfort as anything else. And so finding this this poem that could stick in my head and just the vividness, to me at least, and I think that still survives years later, of, of a lot of the descriptions. His belly is white, his neck is dark, his hair is an exclamation mark. It's something that I've come to admire even more as I get older. There is quite a lot to be said for just the masterfulness of putting rhymes together like this and making it look easy. Absolutely fascinating, because you're right, it's the visual and the auditory sort of combined. I mean, even that, his hair is an exclamation mark. I mean, that is just a brilliant line. And and you'll never forget that. You can just see the boy now, and it's it's incredible. It's fabulous. And it's done so so pithily as well, the, the economy of it. I remember the line, a blitz of a boy. It's, yeah. Before I even knew what the blitz was, uh, I had an idea that there was something chaotic and explosive contained in that. So, so much in that one word, blitz. Yeah. And like I said, when I first encountered this poem, I, I did not know what that meant. But knowing as I do now that that poem was also written when the actual capital B Blitz was a pretty recent memory for Causley and for his audience and the establishment of the welfare state, which also features in the poem. You you look back at that and you think the choice of that word seems like something that is designed to signal covertly to the adults reading it that this is a poem in which something quite sinister is at work in the background. I think that even as a child, um, by the time you know that Timothy Winters has bloody feet, you know that there is something fundamentally not right about this, and that this child isn't just a threadbare child who looks kind of funny, this child is actually suffering. It works quite an effective sucker punch in that regard, I should say. It sort of catches you off guard. The the stanza, old man Winters likes his beer and his missus ran off with a bombardier, is almost comic. And then grandma sits in the grate with a gin and Timothy's dose with an aspirin is, is mm-hmm. terrible. And it? yet, if I wanted to illustrate perfectly how to communicate in the most understated way possible that this child is living in a single-parent household with an alcoholic and possibly abusive parent. Old Man Winters likes his beer. An adult reading that immediately can tell, in light of everything that we now know about this boy, ah, that's what the home life is like. It just dismantles any defences that you might have against um, not caring. And it does... It does so in a way that I think is even more haunting for how unobtrusive a lot of it is. When did you read it and realize how many dark elements were there? When did you start to worry about Timothy? Hmm. Um, I think returning to it probably when I was in my early to mid-teens, I was beginning to put together more and more that that this poem was gesturing to something that was wrong, not just with this boy, but with a whole other world of boys who have to live like this in one way or another. 
what is so clever about this is it reaches the adult and reaches the child even through child's eyes. That is a clever poem and a, an intelligent poem. Extremely, extremely so. I think it's interesting that there are not very many adults present in this poem, except as background characters, but that one of them is the welfare worker, capital W, both cases, who one gets the impression even from those two lines, a kind of emotional background of somebody who is trying their best, but who is just worn out by negotiating with the, the complications of this system. The welfare worker lies awake, but the law is as tricky as a 10-foot snake. It's not sentimental about the idea that there is going to be someone who rides in on a white horse and fixes everything. That The work of actually trying to make life better for even one person involves toil and emotional labor and nights spent lying awake wondering what on earth is to be done. It occurs to me that there is something of a, of a religious coloring to some of the kind of background images of the poem, not, not in the least. You know, it ends with a, a prayer explicitly to God about not to do anything in particular, but just acknowledging Timothy Winter's Lord. Amen. And while I was reading it in preparation for this, I was brought back to a line, I forget which gospel it's from, uh, but one that sticks with me even in sort of my post-religious days, where Christ at some point says to his followers something like, the, the poor will always be with you, uh, which I took real issue with when I was a teenager as being not ambitious enough, uh, that you know, if we all just put our shoulders to the wheel, then there might come a point when the poor are not with us any longer, and that's what we should all be working towards. I think I have, even as I am not a believer, I have come to understand that line more to mean there will always be spurs to your compassion. There will always be people who are in need of your help. And I think that this poem works on a very similar kind of emotional register. It is not hopelessness at the idea that you know, there will always be people like Timothy Winters. It is an acknowledgement that while there are such people in the world as Timothy Winters, then here is where we are, and that is where our empathy must lie, and that is what we must turn our attention to. I mean, Causley seems to be saying, let's not rest on our laurels and congratulate ourselves at having created the welfare state. It's sort of saying, look, there's still people slipping through the net. Exactly. And the line, um, they say there aren't boys like him anymore. Indeed. That smug attitude of, yeah, obviously there's one or two little pockets of horror and agony here and there, but, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that. That attitude is, I think, in that one line, <laughs> expertly dismembered. They say there aren't boys like him anymore. Well, tell that to Timothy Winters. Does it inspire you even now to make that change? And, and if so, in what way? I mean, it in inspires uh, and hangs somewhere in front of me as a, as a thing that I'm always working towards. I decided that what I needed to do was to work in the law. What I've come to appreciate and what this poem also, I think, highlights is that this is not the kind of thing that any one person is going to come in and fix. I think that what the poem reminds me to do is, is to do your bit, whatever that might be. The little 
corner in which you have to work matters. If I get the the result that I want to get for one of the people who I am representing, then it doesn't fix everything overnight, but it makes a hell of a lot of difference to that one person. And working in concert with other people who have the same objective is is also a part of being able to go to your own part in it with some hope in your heart uh, and some fresh resolve. I find it very inspiring what you're saying too, just just coming up with those ideas of, of, of how a team of people can, can make the change. It's a, a thing that is on my mind uh, in, in my working life. And yeah, the specter of complacency is always there. Um, and even in the, in the poem where even at the moment where the master is reminding people to remain aware of, uh, of the plight of children less fortunate than ourselves, they're right there in the room with him is Timothy Winters. Tim, you say this poem has, has had resonance for you at different stages in your life. How does it resonate with you now? And what sort of friend would you say this poem is to you now? Hmm. Um, what resonates most with me now, I think, is the sense of resolve that deciding to make that commitment day after day after day to trying to do the right thing is a spirit that to me comes through even more so in the final stanzas uh, of the poem. This friend probably goes to church, even though I don't. But we volunteer at the same places, and so whenever I meet him, he always asks how I'm doing. And it's the kind of friend who just holds you up, somebody who, who strengthens you and reminds you to, to, to keep going, even as dark as it can sometimes get. I'm, I'm curious, just one last thing. So come one angel, come on turn, Timothy Winters says, amen, 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 amen. I just really want to know what you feel about those last lines. What does that mean? Hmm. I mean, to me, it sounds one part petition, one part sort of calling for intervention, come one angel, come on ten, presumably to just intervene and save this poor boy. But I'm also reminded that... Amen, as I recall, literally means something like, so be it. Timothy Winters is himself answering this prayer for children less fortunate than ourselves. He's the loudest voice in the room. Uh, and so just ending with his name, and Timothy Winters, Lord, amen, commending this, this boy and just sort of saying, look, here he is. <laughs> be good to him. I think that's... The hope that you see in that is 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 really moving. When I when I first saw that that line, that last line, Timothy Winters, Lord, Amen. I I hate to say, but I I, I felt the boy might be lying in a coffin. Mm -hmm. The the potential for for the darkest possible reading of that poem is, I think, never entirely absent, which is one of the, the strengths of it. You hope that by, by offering that up, you can in some way avert that outcome, which really, I suppose, is, is why if a poem is somewhat like a prayer in that it is something that primarily does good for the person saying it, then I think that, yeah, this, this is a good example of a poem working as a prayer and, and a prayer that I can readily say and commit myself to. 
Timothy Winters. Timothy Winters comes to school with eyes as wide as a football pool, ears like bombs and teeth like splinters. A blitz of a boy is Timothy Winters. His belly is white, his neck is dark, and his hair is an exclamation mark. His clothes are enough to scare a crow, and through his breeches the blue winds blow. When teacher talks, he won't hear a word, and he shoots down dead the arithmetic bird. He licks the pattern off his plate, and he's not even heard of the welfare state. Timothy Winters has bloody feet, and he lives in a house on Suez Street. He sleeps in a sack on the kitchen floor, and they say there aren't boys like him anymore. Old man Winters likes his beer, and his missus ran off with a bombardier. Grandma sits in the grate with a gin, and Timothy's dosed with an aspirin. The welfare worker lies awake, but the law's as tricky as a ten-foot snake. So Timothy Winters drinks his cup and slowly goes on growing up. At morning prayers, the master helves for children less fortunate than ourselves, and the loudest response in the room is when Timothy Winters roars, Amen! So come one angel, come on ten. Timothy Winters says, Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Timothy Winters, Lord. Amen. That was Al with the gift reading at the end there. Of course, our enormous thanks to Tim for allowing us to use that beautiful conversation and to David Hyam for allowing us to use that incredible poem. Fantastic. I mean, in listening to that conversation, because we weren't part of it, mm. and listening to that poem, I thought, yeah, this is, this is for Tim and now for me, the kind of friend that holds you to account. And... Uh, it does so in such an interesting way. Mm. You know, if you're going to hold somebody to account, you can't just sort of bang on at them. You've got to do mm. something kind of interesting about how you do that. So, I, I, yeah, I took an awful lot from listening to that. And certainly it's very much part of Tim Kiley's work as both a poet and a barrister and an activist. He's getting on with it. He's mm. rolling up his sleeves and yeah. um, amazing. You found this great quote for you, I won't take credit for it, but this is uh, that apparently um, Charles Causley, who was a Cornish poet, said, if I didn't write poetry, I'd explode. I like that. Yeah, I think that's where these kind of extraordinary works come from. And Tim brilliantly has just released his latest collection, ah. which is called Plaque for the Unknown Socialist. And that's coming out with Backroom Poetry. That's out now? It is indeed. Oh, great. We'll put a link on the description. So in this month of poetry-filled news, we have one more piece of news that we wanted to let you know about, which is that if you go to our website, thepoetryexchange.co.uk, you will be able to navigate to the Nominate page. And we've revamped that just to make it more user-friendly, um, and we'd love to hear from you if you have a poem that's been a friend to you. We recognise that we haven't got the, the time or the resources to be able to have a full-length conversation 
with everyone, but we'd be really, really interested to hear from you about the poem that's been a friend to you. And also in the newly revamped page, enjoy looking at some headlines from other people. And who knows, yours might appear there next. So Michael, we will, as we've started to do, uh, leave everybody with our bonus poem. And um, in the National Poetry Day theme of refuge, the reading that came to mind was the phenomenal reading that we had. Part of our In the Company of Poems live online reading event with the phenomenal Kieran Hines as one of our readers. We will be doing another In the Company of Poems uh, in the winter coming up. So hopefully by us sharing this reading now, you'll also get a taste of how brilliant it can be to listen to poems at that event. It's a poem by Yeats and we'll leave you with Kieran Hines. He wishes for the cloths of heaven. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths enwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread on my dreams. That's about all we've got time for this month. We'll be back with you next month with more Poems as Friends. Until then, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.